Morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, as we conclude a series uh, in the opening chapters of the book of Romans this morning, Understanding the Human Condition. Uh, we spent our summer weeks doing that. We're going to begin a new series in Romans uh, in, later in September. I wanted to mention at the beginning here, just in case all of a sudden uh, my posture changes, uh, there is a stool back there with a pub table. Uh, I tweaked my back this week, and um, I'm not going to be doing my normal cartwheels on the platform today. <laughs> So if all of a sudden you didn't do anything, nothing happened, it just something tweaked a little bit, and I decided I was going to try sitting down. So they've graciously got a stool for me. I, I made it through the 8 o'clock. I have high hopes for now. Uh, now you're all worried that what's he going to do? Should he do that? Should he move? Why is he moving? Why is he leaning? But anyway, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have all made the charge that you, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Lord, we look to your Spirit to teach us today. God, we look at this sober passage, and I pray that we might see the glory, the, the hope that is presented in this passage for our own lives, uh, that, Lord, we might see the glory of grace, that we are not having to live our lives under the sentence of law, but we can live under the, the verdict of grace. Teach us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, the jury for the Paul Manafort trial brought back a verdict of guilty on eight charges of financial crimes and were unable to come to a verdict on another 10 charges that the prosecutors were pursuing. A verdict, of course, in a trial is a decision. It is a decision that requires unanimous agreement. Uh, otherwise, the charges, uh, there is not a, a verdict that is declared. As we come to the book of Romans, we are coming to... Paul's pre the culmination of Paul presenting a case for three chapters. And now in these verses, verses 9 through 20, he is bringing to us God's verdict of, of the data and the evidence that has been presented. He basically takes uh, the majority of this section to quote a variety of Old Testament passages to say this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, and then in verse 19 and 20, the ultimate sentence uh, or verdict that, it's given, that is given. In the midst of this, he presents a sobering 
picture of humanity under the influence of sin. And he presents a section of Scripture here, which is one of the primary texts defending and uh, being the foundation for a doctrine, a, a historic doctrine of Christian faith called total depravity. And we're going to look at that uh, as we go through and try to present some misunderstandings of it and some of the realities of it. But it's talking about the ultimate utter sinfulness of mankind. Malcolm Muggleridge, a British journalist, famously described total depravity in these words, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality about humankind and at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. He says, if you want empirical evidence, just look at yourself or look around you. G.K. Chesterton uh, affirmed that when he called it the only part of Christian faith, Christian theology, which can be readily proved. Just look around. In this section of Scripture, Paul presents four verdicts about the human conditions. And the first thing he tells us that humans are guilty of is in verses 9 through 12, we are guilty of total disloyalty. He says, there is no one who seeks God. And then he also says in verse 12, all have turned away. Now, Romans 3 is about sin, and he's giving us uh, sin that causes people to be under sentence. But I, I would like to suggest that I think most perceptions of the essence of sin is not accurate. Um, that the Bible gives an essence of sin that is strikingly powerful and also in some ways very compelling if you think about it. It says that sin is relational before it becomes behavioral. We think of sin as behavioral. I would suggest to you the Bible thinks of it as relational. That is why the Bible regularly talks about our sin as adultery towards God. There is a betrayal. He who made us to know him to enjoy Him, to live our lives under His benevolent rulership, to find our joy and pleasure in Him, tells us that sin is all about our relationship to Him. If you notice that, it starts in the description. It says that no one seeks God in verse 9. And then later on in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Sin's about God. It's about our relationship to God. It is our rejection of God that is actually at, is at the essence of sin. Sin then is more like the act of a traitor than that of a criminal. We think of it in criminal terminology. But I would suggest to you it is far more about traitorship. A criminal breaks the law of his country. A traitor betrays his country. A criminal violates the law. A traitor violates a trust, a relationship. It says here, people have turned from God. That what he's talking about is our wandering away, our removing ourselves. And what I consider the, the best book I've ever written on sin read on sin. Now, you might not have a lot of books you've read on sin, uh, at least on the theology of sin. You may have read some books about sin, but, but 
The book about sin that I think is most poignant is a book by Cornelius Platinga. It is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin. Basically, it is, it's a really good read. It's actually an interesting read. It's a lot of contemporary stories. It's, it's good stuff. But he, in it, he is talking about sin as a violation of relationship. In his book, he says this, and, and he's talking about the loss of shalom, which he says, and I, I, many biblical writers would say, shalom is life as God designed it to be. In biblical thinking, we can understand neither shalom nor sin apart from reference to God. Sin is not only the breaking of law, but also the breaking of covenant. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God, and the reason for that is because it's a relationship that has been spurned. That's why in verse 12 he says, all have turned away. These are directional words. They are talking about the trajectory of our lives. And he's saying that sin takes you away from God. Your lives are not seeking after God, but seeking away from God. Sin is trying to get out from under God's gaze, out from under his control, out from relationship with him. You want to be your own God, have control of your own life, he says that's the trajectory of all human beings because they're living under the influence of sin. Now, Paul, of course, in chapters 1 to 3 is including everybody here. He's, he's, he's highlighted two groups, the irreligious and the religious. He's continually gone back and forth, and he says everybody's in this capacity. I mean, don't think of it because you're religious, you're not. Don't think because you're irreligious that you're not responsible because you have the voice of conscience, you have the voice of creation. He says everybody's here. And he says the irreligious, this is the tenor of your life, the trajectory of your life, and it's shown by simply, you simply do what you want regardless of what God wants. He says for the religious, the trajectory of your life being away from God, is that you are not seeking God for himself. It doesn't say that nobody seeks God's blessing or God's help or God's power, but you're not seeking God for himself as God and Lord of your life. You still want to be in control. You just want God to bless your control. And he says the trajectory of sin is basically that you are saying, I want to be boss. I mean, I want to do life. And yes, I, maybe I want God's blessing. Maybe I, I, I want to be a religious person because it makes me feel moral. But he says the trajectory of human life is that people are moving away from the ultimate lordship and relationship with God. A second thing he identifies about this culpability and of, of, of disloyalty is that it is, a, it, it, a, it is something that he describes in verse 18. He says, they have no fear of God in their eyes. Now, I've mentioned before that there are two senses in which the word fear is used in the Bible preeminently. One is the one we typically think about fear. It is the fear of danger. It, it, it is the threatening fear. It is the dread-filled fear. And it's a powerful reality in our lives. I've had the chance in the last few years twice to go down to the Florida Keys with my sons, and both were on the occasion of a high school, uh, of, of one of my sons graduating from high school. And the older boys and I, we, we went to the Florida Keys for three days, and uh, one of the things we did was snorkeling. And 
There were two things before we snorkeled that I was, I was convinced of. One came by talking to people. One was just, I knew it innately. The first thing I knew was that a nurse shark, which there were some of those supposedly in the area, in the reefs, a nurse shark is docile and does not ever bite people, so it is not to be feared. That was the thing I learned locally. The second thing I knew was that protecting my sons is a higher value to me than protecting myself. Then I went snorkeling. And there were three things I learned from my snorkeling experience. Number one, when an eight-foot nurse shark suddenly comes around a bend and you're 15 feet below the surface and it comes around the bend of a reef and locks its beady eyes on your eyes, it does not matter what kind of shark it is. <laughs> Secondly, I learned that when an eight-foot shark is coming in your direction, self-preservation trumps parental care. <laughs> and the third thing I learned, you actually can hear people screaming underwater. <laughs> Fear of danger is powerful. It is controlling. But there's a second sense of fear, not only this dread-filled fear, but this delight-filled fear. And this is what we are called to fear God as, that there is a sense in which we are drawn to God with awe, that we know and are convinced that God is the biggest, most powerful being in, in the universe. He can do anything. He can protect anyone. He can conquer any foe. He can accomplish any purpose. And his children lean into him with that kind of fear. There's an awe, but it is coupled with trust. Whereas the dread-filled fear makes you want to run from something, the awe-filled fear makes you want to lean into it. And it is this fear of God, but it is not a fear that does, that, that, that does not recognize the power and the, the majesty and, and the capacity for demonstration of remarkable strength. Now, the striking thing is that in both types of fear, there is one common reality, and that is in a dread-filled fear and a delight-filled fear. Whatever it is that you fear is the consuming reality in your life at that moment. It is controlling. It is dominating. It becomes the biggest thing to you. It, it is more influential. And, and, and when the Scripture says, fear God... It means that God is the biggest reality in your life. His purposes are the biggest reality for you. His will is the biggest reality. His love, his care, his providence, his protection, his desire for your life. They become the consuming reality. And what he's saying here is that when someone is not living, there is no fear of God in their eyes. He said there are other things that are controlling you. There are other things that are dominating, captivating you. His power, his greatness are not what you're leaning into. His pleasure is not your delight. It's not the preoccupying reality to you. God is not central in your life. Other things rule you, control you, awe you, dominate your actions, your decisions, your conversations, your responses. It can be people's opinion. It can be a captivating moment of passion. 
It can be your, your success or, or, or the way you're perceived or how you perceive it, whatever it is. He says, whatever is captivating your heart, whatever it is controlling you, is that which you ultimately are awed by and fear. And he says, the problem in our humanness is we have displaced God because of sin. Sin is actually disloyalty because we have made other things captivating our heart that control us. It might be our own will that we want to be in control. But he says there's, there's no fear of God in their lives. There is disloyalty. This passage is saying that the trajectory of our lives naturally is away from God as the central reality of our life. And he says it is, it is total disloyalty. It's true of everybody. The second thing he says in verses 13 through 18 is to talk about the verdict of total depravity. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. These are all Old Testament quotations that he's picking and choosing to argue his point. Now, many have heard of the term total depravity or totally depraved, and, and I, I, I just want to say what it does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that you are as bad as you could be. It's not, and when you say we're totally depraved, it doesn't mean that you, you are as wicked as a person. You have done as horrible things a person could happily do. Obviously, Adolf Hitler has done a lot worse things than Mother Teresa, even in her pre-Christ state, that, that, that basically it's saying that there is a capacity there He's not saying that we have fulfilled and we have done things as evil as we could. Secondly, it does not mean that you never do good things. We've already seen in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that those that don't have special revelation, that don't have the Bible, that really haven't heard specifically about Jesus and, and, and all the special revelation of God, that they still have God's voice in their lives. In creation, he reveals his, his power, his godness, but in Romans 2.15, it says he's also revealed his will on their hearts. Their conscience speaks. But it makes this statement. It says in verse 15, and the conscience of those that don't have the Bible, that don't know Jesus, that, that are apart from faith, their conscience sometimes accuses them, sometimes defends them. Sometimes their conscience says, boy, that was good, good job. You did good things. There is affirmation. And so certainly we're not saying that, that total depravity means that people don't ever do good things. So what does total depravity mean? Well, total depravity does not mean that a person is as bad as they could be due to sin. Total depravity does mean a person is corrupted in every part of their being through sin. The word depravity is from the Latin word pravus, which means crooked or twisted. It's saying every part of us has been corrupted or, or twisted to some degree. Every part of us is impacted by sin. And every part of our human constitution, our mind, our emotions, our sexuality, our conscience, our will, it's striking in this passage there is a deliberate listing of the different parts of the body by Paul. And he says throats, lips, mouths, feet, eyes, these limbs and organs were created and given to you by God. 
with the purpose of blessing others and honoring God. He says, this is what shalom is, the way of peace, life as it ought to be, as it's supposed to be. He says, is God created you with all the organs you have, all the body parts you have, the limbs, the mind, the, the ability to speak. He has given you all those things to bless others. And life as it ought to be is that we are using all of our, 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 our the constitution of all that we are to bless others to the glory of God. And so he says, I've, I've given you the capacity, the gift of speech to encourage, to build others up, to bless others, but you've used it to lie and gossip and criticize and slander and tear down and tell filthy jokes and, and verbally abuse. So with your hands and feet, your wills, your minds and other organs, you do incredible damage to shalom, he says, in our world because all parts of our being have been corrupted from their God-appointed purposes. Total depravity does not mean that every aspect of human life is completely sinful, but rather that there is nothing in us that can struggle against the power of sin in our lives because every part of our being has been affected by it. The other thing he tells us regarding total depravity is this. We are therefore now operating, functioning in an unnatural human condition. The first two chapters of the Bible depict sinless human beings before the fall in the garden. Life as it ought to be is found in Genesis 1 and 2. People living in joyful, unbridled relationship with God we fast forward all the way to the last two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, and we find individuals who are now sinless human beings in what is called the new heavens and the new earth living in joyful relationship with God. The Bible presents this picture of two chapters of shalom, life as it's supposed to be. At the end, two chapters of shalom, life as it's ought to be. And the whole rest of the Bible is the in-between part depicting and presupposing sinful human beings. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Actually, our depravity and sin is utterly unnatural to humanness. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness, and there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. He's really building off the teachings of Augustine in the fourth century where St. Augustine said this, evil has no existence except as a privation of good. Goodness is the order of shalom, life as God designed it to be, but sin has distorted and corrupted it in every one of our lives. Platinga, again, the second quote, uh, I, I think says this, this beautifully. Here's what he says. In the biblical worldview, even when sin is depressingly familiar, it is never normal. It is finally unknown, irrational, alien. Sin is always a departure from the norm and is assessed accordingly. So the biggest biblical idea about sin expressed in a riot of images and terms is that sin is an anomaly. 
an intruder, a notorious gate crasher. Sin does not belong in God's world, but somehow it's gotten in. In fact, sin is dug in and like a tick burrows deeper when we try to remove it. Sinful human life is a caricature of proper human life. We are living in that interim period between shalom and shalom, life not as it ought to be. And Paul is here saying the verdict is that humankind has been disloyal to God and has breached shalom. And the effect of that is the second. They are totally corrupted, and it's seen in every part of their lives. They don't use their words to always bless They don't use the words to build up. They don't use the body parts in a way that is always righteous and helpful to others. There is genocide. There is prejudice. There is discrimination. There is hatred. There is animosity. There is all these things. And he says it's life as it ought not to be. There is total corruption. This is the nature. The verdict is disloyalty, depravity, which leads to the third verdict, and I'll just touch on this. There is total deficiency. His culminating statement is found in verse 19 and 20, where he says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. He said, There's nobody, he's talking particularly first to religious people. He says, religious people trying to measure up by being good, hopefully being graded on a scale or a curve, you know, if they can just get in the top rung, or maybe they've got more good things than bad things, he says, it's not going to work. The verdict is total corruption. The verdict is, is, is that the trajectory of your life has frankly been away from God, and that there is no true God seeker. There is no true person that is living righteously. Everybody's living with corrupted human experience of the way that it was designed to be. This is the the, the malady of sin in our lives. And he says the verdict then is we are all guilty. And the whole trajectory of our lives has declared that. Now, this is where we're left at the end of our series. The picture is a solemn one. He says, I'm declaring there is no one that is not in this position on all of the earth. Religious people, irreligious people stand under this verdict. But where he's going to take us in the next few verses and where we'll pick up in our next series is the total deliverance because Romans 3.20 is not the end of the story. The Bible story begins with the goodness of creation, and it ends with the goodness of the new creation. In between is sin, but sin is only the backdrop to the story. It is never the point. This is really important to understand. Sin is not the focus Sin is the backdrop for the glorious story that God is presenting through through these epics of time. It is the story of rescue. It is the story of deliverance. It is the story of redemption. It is the story of the one who has come. It emerges in God's good creation. Sin does as a temporary intruder, causes much havoc, 
and, and holds many in its clutches, but it is no match for the work of God in Christ. Through his sinless life, his sin-bearing death, his sin-defeating resurrection, and his sin-crushing second coming, sin and its offspring of suffering and death are given the death blow. Sin abounded, but grace superabounds. In the biblical story, God has the first word, and thankfully, God has the last word. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close my, my sermon this morning with a story by Brennan Manning, who I think in this little story um, brings together the reality of our human condition in sin, disloyalty, depravity, deficiency, into the breathtaking deliverance that can be ours. He's telling the story of his high school reunion, 50-year uh, reunion, actually. And here's what he says. Never having attended my high school reunion in the 49 years since graduation in February 1952, and motivated by guilt, nostalgia, and curiosity, I returned to Xaverian High School, Brooklyn, New York, in April 2002 for the celebration of our Golden Jubilee. The reunion was both happy and sad. Seven in our class of 44 had died in the unavoidably intimate setting of a relatively small class, my introvert self, longing to spend the night in a shoe, was summoned to socialize. As the cocktails multiplied and tongues were lubricated, formalities disappeared, ties got shocked, coats were tossed aside, laughter exploded, and conviviality reigned. The angst for the Brooklyn Dodgers' departure for Los Angeles and the treachery of the team's president, Walter O'Malley, wailed into the night. It was a calamity of biblical proportions. As the evening progressed, I was asked by Jack, in Brooklyn speech, the sweetest sound I've ever, still I've ever heard, what the hell you been doing with yourself the last 50 years? Without a second's hesitation, I answered, it's been a half century of sin and grace. With a twinkle in his eyes, Jack asked, would you share a little about the foist part? <laughs> yes, I've been a drunk and I've been divorced. I've been sexually promiscuous, faithful during my marriage but unfaithful to celibacy, a liar, envious of the gifts of others, a priest who was insufferably arrogant, a people pleaser and a braggart, which I'm probably being right now to give you the impression that I'm humble and honest. The twinkle in Jack's eyes vanished. And part two, by sheer undeserved grace, I've been able to abandon myself in unshaken trust to the compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ. I need to talk with you, whispered Jack. Can we step outside? You may be here today or watching online, and you found yourself in the description someplace or another that I gave of those first three verdicts. I invite you to step outside this morning and embrace the one that came to this planet to be the rescuer. Say, you don't have to live 
this way. You don't have to live separated from life in God. You can begin to have, in, in, in a small way in your life, the first steps toward the restoration of shalom, where Christ lives his life within you. It involves, first of all, embracing his forgiveness. It involves embracing the new life that he gives but maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online because God says, I want you to step outside for a moment. I want you to hear that, yes, there is disloyalty complete in your life. You have rejected me and, and I made you from, for relationship and, and you chose a thousand other things to be central and you see the corruption of life in your own life. And you sense your own inability to earn your way back to God as no one can. But I've sent Jesus for you. He's come to rescue, to change. Won't you today, this morning, step outside, embrace Christ. Maybe you're here or you're watching online and you have embraced Christ. Maybe the visual that, and, and, and the one that you need to identify in the story is not Jack, it's, it's Brennan Manning, a man who was stunned with grace, who was willing to say, yep, this is who I am. This is what I am. I see the fruit of this in my life. Corruption in words, exhibit A. Corruption in, in practice, exhibit A. Corruption in, in thought, exhibit A. But for Christ, my life can find acceptance, hope, meaning. I don't have to live in the captivity of those things. Maybe he wants us, the Spirit does, to be enthralled like Brennan Manning seemed to be and be able to say, who am I? A corrupted person who's been a drunk, divorced, promiscuous and a variety of other things, a braggart, an exaggerator. It's who I am without Christ. It's who I still am when I don't live in the power of Christ. But I've been given Christ. We don't ever get any farther along in our journey then the fact that we have that capacity with us in every day, we still have our flesh, our sinful nature, as some versions call it. We still have the capacity to, to live our total corruption. And what we're called to do is, like Brennan Manning seemed to have been in all of his books, he's just stunned that Christ wanted him, that Christ pursued him. If you're here and you have experienced God's forgiveness, he wanted you. He pursued you. He offers day by day, right now, today. He offers to do life with you. And we as believers need to just be stunned again. I'm not talking about a, theor you know, a theoretical concept, you know, the world is under sin. No, my world is. I am apart from Christ. We're called to again be stunned with the glory and the beauty and the majesty the superabounding grace where it says where sin abounds, grace superabounds. The end of this story, what is the picture of the human condition? It's dark, it's stark, it's grim. 
but we have the victory in Christ. We are offered the, the, the preview of shalom in our lives, life as it ought to be. We're still screwing it up and messing it up, but we're beginning to taste. Wow, that's what life is meant to be. There can be a humility that I couldn't have without Christ. There could be a vulnerability and a, and a transparency about the ugliness of my own heart that I didn't have until I had Christ. There is the ability to acknowledge my, my weaknesses and my flaws that I didn't have without Christ. There's the beginning to say, I, I'm seeing change I'm beginning to get just a little taste of shalom. Life is, a, is designed to be true human life. A life of freedom, a life of peace, a life that is Christo-God-centric, where God is the biggest living reality in our lives. Maybe we need to be stunned back into that gaze again. Let's pray. Lord, you look at our lives. You know where we are. You see us. You see what we brought into this room today. There's certainly people here that have not embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, how I pray that even as a result of this service, your Spirit would draw them to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who have tasted grace who have been rescued of eternal separation. Lord, use these simple thoughts today as we, we look at ourselves and we see our own disloyalty. We see our own corruption, and yet we see a God who wants to be central in our lives because you really want us. Lord, let us embrace you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy that, Lord.